1: This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria, coming to you live from New York. We'll start today's show with the attack on Saudi Arabia's oil infrastructure and Iran's threat of all-out war if the Islamic Republic is attacked. Then, A whistleblower cries foul because President Trump made promise to a foreign leader. We'll dig into that story. Also, what to make of Israel's election results. All that with a great panel. And an interview with the Secretary General of the United Nations. This is a threat now. On Monday, he will convene the globe to call for urgent action on climate change. Will it work? Finally, with almost 8 billion humans on the planet, we're constantly interacting with people we don't know. Are we too trusting of them? Malcolm Gladwell gives us the answer. But first, here's my take. The enemy gets a vote. American military leaders are fond of using that line. General James Mattis used it so often, it's sometimes attributed to him. In fact, it's a nugget of wisdom dating back to Sun Tzu, the Chinese military strategist who counseled that one must know the enemy. And it describes the central mistake of Donald Trump's Iran policy. In a confidential memo that was later leaked, Britain's then ambassador to Washington wrote something that most observers knew anyway. Trump pulled out of the Iran deal largely because it had been signed by Barack Obama and with no thought toward a day-after strategy. But while the decision might have been made for domestic political reasons— it has unleashed serious geopolitical consequences. The Trump administration's strategy, such as it is, appears to be to double down on pressure on Iran, force other nations to abide by America's unilateral sanctions, and bet that this would cause Iran to capitulate. Iran's initial reaction was actually restrained. It simply sought to bypass the U.S. It continued to adhere to the deal and made efforts to trade with other countries. This failed. Because of the dollar's centrality to the international financial system, the sanctions worked. Iran's economy suffered a big blow, and its oil exports plummeted. European countries, furious about the abuse of the dollar's role, tried to create an alternative payments mechanism, but so far it has not succeeded. Iran's next effort has been to demonstrate that there is a cost to this kind of maximum pressure. It has harassed ships in the Persian Gulf, reminding everyone that 20% of the world's oil supply goes through that narrow body of water. It shot down an American drone, signaling to the Pentagon that it has the capacity to disrupt America's intelligence and reconnaissance in the region. And now, Tehran seems to be behind a precision attack on Saudi Arabia's main oil processing plants, a strike effective enough that it initially shut down half of Saudi oil production. The message is clear. Hostilities with Iran would spill over throughout the Middle East and disrupt global oil supplies. The enemy voted, and its behavior was the opposite of what the Trump administration expected. Maximum pressure on Iran did not moderate its behavior or make it come crawling back to the table. Instead, it provoked Iran to retaliate. The status quo of sanctions is hard enough on Tehran that it must feel it has less to lose by acting provocatively, even dangerously. There is also the reality of domestic politics within the Islamic Republic. The Iran deal was unpopular with hardliners in the U.S., but it was also unpopular with hardliners in Tehran. They predicted that Washington would renege on its promises. Once Trump pulled out of the deal, they claimed vindication. There is a line that Jim Mattis has in fact coined, and it's about allies. Nations with allies thrive and nations without allies wither. It's striking that America embarked on this new, risky strategy toward Iran with support from few allies. Trump treats European allies poorly to begin with. It appears to be the main reason Mattis resigned as Secretary of Defense. They, too, have a vote. And far from helping, they are actively seeking to thwart America's policies towards Iran. In The Art of War, Sun Tzu writes that victory is only possible with a leader who knows when to pick his battles and is prepared. Defeat is all but guaranteed with the leader who is reckless, mercurial, and prideful. Timely analysis from the 6th century BC. For more, go to cnn.com slash Farid and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's bring in today's panel. There's much to discuss. Anne-Marie Slaughter was the Director of Policy Planning at the State Department. She's now President and CEO of the think tank New America. Robin Wright is a contributing writer for The New Yorker. She's one of the world's foremost reporters on the Middle East. And Martin Indyk has been U.S. Ambassador to Israel twice. He is now a Distinguished Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Before we get to uh, to Iran, Anne-Marie, let me me just ask you, um, the whistleblower Ukraine... Uh, scandal issue. Um, how how should we think about it? Uh, the 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 argument is that Donald Trump would try to pressure the incoming president of Ukraine uh, to investigate co- supposed corruption uh, of Joe Biden's son. Uh, he says he did nothing wrong, and in fact, the investigation should be about the actual corruption of Joe Biden's son or the alleged corruption. I should say sorry. What's, you know, what's what's the uh, the, the bottom line?
2: Well, so Fareed, good journalists should be following the evidence and not the spin. Right. There is no evidence. No evidence that has been corroborated anywhere that Biden actually intervened on behalf of his son. There's evidence that Hunter Biden has done things that are embarrassing uh, to the vice president. That's an old story when we talk about the kids of, of uh, presidents and candidates. And indeed, it's it's true of President Trump as well. There is evidence or there appears to be evidence from an inside whistleblower, not a partisan on the campaign trail, but an inside whistleblower that Trump, in fact, asked a foreign government to investigate the one of his political opponents. That, if true, is absolutely inviting a foreign government to intervene in our domestic politics on behalf of the president. That is a very serious offense. But that's what the story should be. We should follow that evidence and not give credence to an effort to then bring Hunter Biden into everything.
1: Uh, All right. We're going to move on because we have so many things to talk about. Uh, Robin, you have some new reporting on uh, U.S retaliation for the Iran or the the strikes on Saudi Arabia that many are attributing to Iran. Uh, What has the U.S. done and do you think it will be enough or is the U.S. thinking it has to do more to push back against Iran?
3: I think the U.S. is considering a whole range of options, uh, but we know, I know from sources that uh, the U.S. did strike a cyber attack on Friday, first reported by Um, uh, My sources confirm that this happened, but it's happened. This is not the first time in the United States did this in the aftermath of the Iranian shooting down. Uh, the U.S. drone as well. And this has become a regular pattern. Cyber warfare happens much more than any of us know because it's invisible. But the administration uh, at the U.N. this week is also going to push very hard to build this coalition, maritime coalition, that will protect tankers, but also will do- have a major naval deployment around uh, Iran that will send a signal, you know, we're watching, we'll act, uh, don't mess around with us again. But there, there are other things going on. Uh, there is still... The door is still a tiny bit ajar on a diplomatic initiative trying to get the presidents of Iran and the United States together for the first time since the 1979 revolution. Uh, The Supreme Leader said this week that um, talks at any level were off the table unless the United States lifted sanctions and uh, went back to some form of nuclear agreement. There is an idea on the table that would be permanent ban on nuclear weapons in Iran in exchange for a permanent lifting of sanctions that would have to be codified by the parliaments, the the legislatures in both countries?
1: Uh, Martin, it feels like somebody uh, put put it to me this way over the weekend. Um, The Trump administration has effectively put Iran in a box with these sanctions that are really strangling the Iranian economy, but it's also put itself in a box. Uh, because it ha- now has to respond. It's given Iran nothing, no option but to, uh, or an incentive to act in this way. But now it has to respond in
4: some way. I think, Fareed, we're actually at a, at a turning point in terms of U.S. policy in the Middle East, uh, as manifested in a Trump tweet, but it's been a long time coming. He said in one of his tweets that the United States no longer needs Middle Eastern oil. That is correct. That is a, as a result of the natural gas fracking revolution in the United States. We are the largest oil producer in the world today. So we no longer have a vital interest, one in which American soldiers should die for the protection of American interests in terms of oil flow from the Gulf. That's been coming a long time. That was Obama's view too. But Trump now has reinforced it. In the process, he has sent a signal to Iran and to Saudi Arabia that the united states cannot be relied on in the same way as in the past to defend saudi arabia in fact he even tweeted that they should pay they should do it we will support them and they should pay there's a part of his overall approach of subcontracting but if that's what he's going to do then he cannot exactly as you say he's in a corner if he keeps on upping the pressure with more sanctions the iranians will keep on retaliating especially because they see now that he will not use force against them and therefore he has to decide now maximum pressure isn't working it's only driving him into a situation where he has to choose between a retaliation that he doesn't want to undertake military retaliation or capitulation to iranian demands. so he needs to get back to the negotiating table he needs to use the sanctions as leverage he needs to offer waivers in order to get back to the t- table and at the same time do these kinds of disavowable acts that make it clear to the Iranians that there is a price to be paid.
1: Robin, you covered the Iran-Iraq war. You've Mm -hmm. talked to Mm -hmm. people like Foreign Minister Zarif many times this year. Would the Iranians be willing to give Trump some additional concessions so that he could claim victory and say, I got a better deal than Obama?
3: Actually, I think the Iranians recognize that that Trump doesn't want to use force and that he would like a deal, and that there may be more guarantees in turn for Iran out of this because to lift sanctions permanently, Trump would have to go to Congress and and make sure that the next president doesn't turn around and undo whatever was agreed under President Trump. They're looking for some kind of permanent arrangement. And so I think there's an incentive still for both sides. But how do you do that after 40 years? Uh, The president of France has been instrumental in trying to get the two sides together. Events over the past week have seemed to disrail that. But the fact is, uh, nobody's ruling out diplomacy yet.
1: Anne-Marie, 30 seconds. It, this doesn't seem like th- this has been planned out by the Trump administration. In other words, they're ratcheting up pressure on Iran, uh, but it doesn't seem as though they know what they want.
2: No, they don't have a strategy for actually getting a better deal. They pulled out of the deal, and now I keep thinking this is this is the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, where, where Dean Russ said, we're eyeball to eyeball, and the other guy just blinked. That's what the Iranians are saying. And we don't, as Martin said, we don't have any way of getting out of that except by doing things we don't want to do.
1: All right. When we come back, Israel, what is up for Bibi Netanyahu next? Will he remain prime minister or face prosecution? I'll ask Martin Indyk, the only person to have served twice as U.S. ambassador to Israel. And we are back with Anne-Marie Slaughter, Robin Wright, and Martin Indyk. Um, Martin, what is going to happen in Israel? <laughs> it's complicated. <laughs> uh,
4: the magic number is 61. That's a majority of the seats in the Knesset, which uh, somebody needs to be able to pull together in order to form a government. In this phase of government formation, the president, Ruby Rivlin, has to decide who will get the first chance to form the government, whether it will be Benny Gantz, the leader of the main opposition party, or Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, It looks today as if Gantz will get the nod, because today the Joint Arab List, which is the third largest party, they got 13 seats, came out and said they they would tell the president that they would support Gantz if he tried to form a government
1: this is the first time they have actively been willing to participate in government. And
4: and this is a kind of revolution in terms of the role of Israel's Arab citizens and their representatives in terms of coming into the mainstream of Israeli politics in a responsible way and Benny Gantz has kind of welcomed them in Uh, as opposed to Netanyahu's incitement of them beforehand and his attempt to intimidate them boomerang they came out in larger numbers got three more seats than the last time in April and helped to reduce his chances of forming a government. So now that the chance I think will go to Guns. Can he put together a government? He has, with Arab support, whether inside his government or outside, probably outside, fifty-seven. So he's four seats short. The man who has the swing vote is the man from Moldova. Yisrael <laughs> Israel, <laughs> Israel Beitano, the Party Yvette Lieberman and he has eight seats. And he said he will only support a national unity government. Gantz has said, yes, national unity government with the Likud, but not with Netanyahu. So it's a kind of Game of Thrones. Lieberman is the kingslayer. And we have to remember, it's not over until the man from Moldova sings.
1: (laughs) Uh, Robin, does it matter that that, uh, Donald Trump seemed to... Um, distance himself from Bibi, saying our relationship is with Israel, implying not with not with any individual.
3: It was stunning that he would so quickly come out and say something that, considering that th- these men are close and have been for decades, that this is a fundamental personal and, and political diplomatic relationship, and that Trump seems willing to to move on. The big question, of course, is what happens with the Trump peace plan, that yeah. that, that the administration, remember the president said, well, oh, this is going to be so much easier than anybody else thinks. And here we are, and we're still waiting. And the question is, does it have any traction afterwards? Uh, what does the president do next in trying to cement this. I mean, one of the great tragedies is we're now more than a quarter century since the last real big peace effort, and we're nowhere closer. The roadmaps, all the plans are out the window, and it's lost uh, the kind of momentum that it had.
1: Um, Before we go, Anne-Marie, I have to ask you, I noticed Elizabeth Warren surging everywhere, and it occurred to me since you were here You were on the Harvard Law School faculty with Elizabeth Warren. In fact, you were on the faculty that hired her. Yes. Um, What do you make of it, and what do you think her, you you know, what are her chances?
2: Well, the the thing to know about her time at Harvard Law School, she was one of the best teachers. She was a spectacular teacher because she can explain very complicated things to a wide range of people, which serves her well uh, now. She was also somebody who didn't play the academic game of law and economics theory. She did empirical work about bankruptcy. So if I look back on what she was like as a colleague, she really was focused on ordinary people and what happened to them, even in an environment that privileged fancy models, economic models. So I see a lot that is helping her on the stump right now.
1: And you, I notice she, after this... Uh this Ukraine business. And I should point out, by the way, there is no evidence that Hunter Biden broke any laws uh, on the one hand. And there is an argument that Trump did the you know, pressure the government on the other. She called for his impeachment.
2: She has called for his impeachment early on. She said the Constitution requires it. It's not about politics. It's about law. Since then, she doesn't talk about Trump. She talks about her vision for the country, This incident meant she again said, yes, we need to impeach, but then very quickly pivoted back. I think the Democrats can take a lesson from that. She's doing well. She's talking about a positive vision for the country.
1: Thank you all. Fascinating conversation. Next on GPS, the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, on why he thinks the world is ready finally to act on climate change. The world came out in force on Friday in climate strikes. The protesters, young and old, were angry and determined to upend the status quo.
2: The US, the United, will never be divided.
1: On Monday, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres will convene world leaders, business leaders, civic leaders to press for urgent action on what the UN is calling the global climate emergency. Noticeably absent will be Donald Trump. Then on Tuesday, the so-called high-level general debate begins, where world leaders, including this time Donald Trump, will offer a piece of their minds. All of that action will happen in the General Assembly room, where I sat down with the Secretary General. Before his appointment as Secretary General, Guterres served as Prime Minister of Portugal and went on to be the UN's High Commissioner for Refugees. Mr. Secretary General, thank you so much for doing this. It's a great pleasure to be here. People have been trying to get the world to take the climate crisis seriously for a while now. And honestly, it doesn't seem to really work. Why do you think you will succeed when others have failed? Because I think things are changing very quickly. Climate change was
0: perceived as a problem for the end of the century. But more and more, the reality is proving that climate change is a problem today. And uh, it's not only a question of glaciers melting or the bleaching of corals. Uh, It's becoming a serious problem with uh, terrible storms being more intense, uh, more frequent, and with more devastating consequences, not only in the global South, but here in the United States. Uh, uh, And we see public health problems. Uh, uh, According to the World Health Organization, the combination of climate change and pollution kills seven million people per year. We see heat waves killing people in Northern Europe. Uh, We see tropical diseases going north. Uh, So more and more people are feeling that climate change is impacting on them today and this is changing public opinions. You have seen in the results of the uh, European elections how climate change all of a sudden became the issue. One year before it was migration. Last time in the European elections was climate change, and I saw recently a poll uh, here in the US and I could see there is overwhelming majority of American citizens that consider climate change is indeed a very meaningful threat and that it requires a solid uh, government action. So I think things are changing, the public opinion is waking up, the youth is making fantastic campaigns and the business community is starting to work seriously. Uh, Central banks are including climate change risks We see rating agencies, uh, including climate change risks. Uh, We see more and more big asset managers representing trillions of dollars divesting from fossil fuels. And uh, uh, it is clear for me that uh, in the civil society, in the business community, in cities, in states, and with the general public, there is more and more disconscience. This is a threat now. And obviously, governments tend to follow public opinions, as we all know, governments tend to follow society. And so I'm starting to see governments also understanding that they need to act. We still have emissions growing. We are still not there. Climate change is running faster than what we are. But for the first time, I'm seeing more and more countries accepting that they have to be carbon neutral in 2050. I've seen more and more countries giving full priority uh, to um, renewable energy, uh, phasing out coal. Not not everywhere. We still have a very serious coal problem, especially in Asia. But I think that the momentum is being gained, and I'm hopeful that we'll be able to accelerate this momentum in the next decade. And it's vital, because the next decade is the take it or leave it. Either we do it in the next decade, or it will be irreversible to have a catastrophic
1: situation at the end of the century. You mentioned coal in Asia, and it seems to me that in some ways is the single biggest piece of this that that doesn't seem to be going away. Uh, Countries like uh, India, even China, which is making some strides on on green technology, they still use an enormous amount of coal to to power their, you know, to, to produce electricity. And coal is very cheap and very dirty. Do you get a sense in your conversations with Asian leaders that there's any hope that this will change? Yes, we are discussing
0: seriously that question, and I hope this will change. And the main reason why this will change is that renewables are becoming cheaper than coal. Coal is still easier to do uh you can have a turnkey uh, power plant, uh, easily built renewables uh, special solar all those still require a little bit more planning more capacity to build etc but it's and, and to
1: now. store let's be honest until you can find a way to store it in the night in when it's not But windy. again
0: with if you have a combination i mean my country portugal has a very high uh, percentage of renewables still with some fossil fuels But again, the combination makes that uh, if you have an adequate uh, uh, distribution, uh, you you can live with still a very meaningful increase of renewables, namely in Asia, without undermining uh, that capacity. And on the other hand, the storage capacity is also improving technologically very quickly, and we believe it will be a
1: solution uh, very soon. I saw a poll recently of 28 countries I think it was and uh, asking how many people believed in climate change. The, The United States had the largest number of people who did not believe in climate change. The Trump administration is moving in ways to undo some of the things that the United States has done particularly on car efficiency standards. How much of a problem is it that the world's leading power has a government right now that is actually actively trying to reverse some of the, the issues that, uh, that had been It resolved.
0: is a problem, but uh, governments have less and less influence in countries as a whole. Uh, what we see in the US, even if it's probably the country where you have a bigger number of people disbelieving, there is already a solid majority believing. And it is in the US that we see uh, very interesting uh, uh, developments in the business community. It is in the US that we see uh, states, uh, they will be present in our summit, Uh, cities, uh, they will be present in our summit, Uh, companies, uh, uh, and the public opinion more and more uh, putting pressure uh, in relation to the need uh, for the US also to give a positive contribution to climate action. So my belief is that uh, all these things, of course, sometimes take time, the influence of public opinion in governments take time, but I'm optimistic about the future contribution of the U.S. to climate action.
1: Mr. Secretary General, pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you very much, too. Next on GPS, we teach our kids not to trust strangers. Don't talk to them, don't take candy from them, but once we become grown-ups, are we too trusting of strangers? When we come back, I'll talk to Malcolm Gladwell, who has a great new book on the subject. Malcolm Gladwell was a relatively obscure writer for The New Yorker when in the year 2000 he published his first book, The Tipping Point. Since then, there's been Blink, Outliers, What the Dog Saw, and David and Goliath, all New York Times bestsellers, most of them at number one. Now he has a fascinating new book out. This one is called Talking to Strangers What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. Welcome, Malcolm. Thank you, Fred the core of this book uh-huh. is about how we encounter people and whether we trust them and don't trust them.
5: Yes, it is It is about the strategies we use to make sense of um, strangers. Um, you know, if you think about this from a kind of evolutionary perspective, we evolved um, in uh, intimate groups, family groups, ethnic groups, where all the strategies we used to communicate with each other were carried out and honed on people who we had a great deal of history with, and more than history, intimacy with. Um, it's only in the last couple of hundred years, you know, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of our time on this planet, that we've um, been forced into regular communication with people outside those groups. And so we're taking strategies honed in one context and using them another. And the argument of the book is that they, the strategies don't work, or they don't work well when they're transferred from affinity groups and intimate groups uh, to people who we, with whom we have no history or nothing in particularly in common.
1: And is the core issue that you are uh, instinctively trusting of, small, of groups within your small family type setting, and you know when you apply that to a broader group? You can get fooled very often.
5: You can get Yeah, so this is an idea. It's one of the core ideas in the book, and it comes from a really brilliant psychologist named um, Tim Levine at University of Alabama. And he's trying to answer the question of, from an evolutionary standpoint, why are we so easily fooled? Does it make any sense? You would think that over time, evolution would have favored people who were good at detecting lies because they would have an advantage. And Levine, Levine says, actually, no that's wrong. The people who have an advantage from an evolutionary standpoint are those who trust implicitly, because trusting implicitly allows you to have far more efficient communication. It allows you to build organizations. It allows you to develop social rituals and functions and all kinds of things. If I start from the premise that you, Fareed, are who you say you are, we can very quickly set in motion a whole chain of productive events. If my first thought is, I don't know, are you? is your name even Fareed? Uh, did you really go to Yale? Do you, is this CNN? I don't know. Is this, I, you let me in here and you're blind. I mean, I could. that just sidetracks us. So we're... But, but,
1: yeah. Yeah. but presumably that trusting uh, instinct uh, has the danger that you get fooled and is the argument that it's a price worth paying because every now and then you'll get fooled, but in the grand scheme of things by trusting people, you'll get more done.
5: Exactly. That is the argument. That is Levine's argument. That is my argument. And I don't think we're aware of this trade-off. And I think every now and again, we get in trouble when we're fooled. And we think that being fooled is somehow a sign that we are negligent or incompetent. And um, we overreact and we build institutions that don't trust anymore. We give up on the very thing that made us human. So I have a, a chapter in my book, for example, on... The Penn State case. The, Jerry Sandusky was a football coach at Penn State who was found to be a serial child molester. And he was convicted and jailed. But then prosecutors started going after people at the university and convicted the athletic director, the vice president of finance, and went after the president of the university, a guy named Graham Spanier, saying that they were implicated in this because they should have known that he was... They should have acted on these minor suspicions. They should have known he was a child molester. I feel incredibly strongly that that's absolutely the wrong... That was the travesty of justice to go after the administration. They... You can't ask people... We should be celebrating people in positions of authority for the fact they build trusting communities, and we should accept the fact that once in a generation, one... Some university president or some other institution head is going to be misled. But that's the, do you really want the opposite? Do you really want to have running your universities or your schools or your, you know, um, uh, companies, people who are so paranoid that they would suspect the worst of their employees? No. Up next, more with Malcolm Gladwell. He'll answer the question, should
1: you have trusted Adolf Hitler? Don't miss it when we come back. It was 81 years ago this month that Britain's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain flew to Munich where he signed a non-aggression pact with Adolf Hitler and along with the other major European powers accepted the so-called Munich Agreement which allowed Germany to take a swath of Czechoslovakian territory. On Chamberlain's return to Britain, he declared he had secured peace for our time. We know how that ended. Malcolm Gladwell discusses this history in his new book, Talking to Strangers, What we should know about the people we don't know. He's here with me now. Neville Chamberlain, at at core, uh, signed the treaty he did, the Munich uh, Accord with Hitler, because he trusted him. He trusted that Hitler would keep his word and that he was not going to take over any more of Czechoslovakia. He was not going to invade Poland. He was not going to do anything else. Mm. Um, Was Chamberlain right to be trusting
5: uh, he, was, he was wrong to base his judgment of Adolf Hitler on a face-to-face encounter. The paradox of Chamberlain and Hitler is the people who got Hitler right were the ones who never met him, and the people who got him wrong were the ones who did spend time with him. Um, I'm very interested in how we can be led astray by face-to-face encounters. So that's a perfect story for my purposes, that Chamberlain should have stayed home and read Mein Kampf, right, the, there was plenty of evidence about Hitler's intentions and the idea the problem with going to visit him, as Chamberlain did, is not that you can't gather information from a face-to-face encounter. But when you, do, when you meet as mesmerizing and charismatic a man as Hitler face-to-face, you run the risk of overvaluing whatever information you gather from that encounter and discounting the really useful hard evidence about the man's stated intentions and previous behavior. Right? So people like Churchill back home in England. By the way, I didn't realize until I wrote the book, Churchill never met Hitler, mm-hmm. ever. Stalin never met Hitler. FDR never met Hitler. The only Western leader to meet Hitler, well, the French leader the did. The French but, did, yeah. uh, uh, And uh, was William Lyon Mackenzie King, the um, Canadian, the Canadian Prime, Minister Prime Minister who met him and loved him. Thought he was like this kind of great historic, you know, basically not a good idea to meet Hitler. Um, <laughs> but, but let me ask a question about particularly Chamberlain, because
1: yeah. you do talk about this a, a little bit, which is, was it also that he wanted to trust him? What well, people forget about Chamberlain was this was a point at which, you know, World War One had just happened 10, 10 yeah. 15 years ago. Europe was devastated. Britain had been totally devastated. It, it was very weak. It didn't have the capacity to rearm in a short be- mm-hmm. So in a sense this was sort of you were hoping that you could sign a peace deal so that you didn't have to go through the incredibly wrenching process of telling your country having sent them out to a world war where they got slaughtered we're going to have to do it again we're going to, have yeah. to re-, you know it, 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 and not to make the analogy too strongly but you know when you see president trump wanting to believe that kim jong un is going to give him a deal mm-hmm. uh, there's a tr- you know some some trust seems to be born from the idea that you know, you want this to be
5: true. I think that's an interesting point, And I think that's completely consistent with uh, Levine's theory, which is, why do we trust? We trust because legitimately that trust allows things to move a lot more s- smoothly than they would otherwise, inefficiently than they would otherwise. So absolutely, it's a part of the psychology of, and of George Bush saying, oh, looking, says, I looked Putin in the eye and right. said, Very this is a man forward. I saw into his soul and, and said, this is a man who can be trusted. All of yeah, them crazy. are... Both, um, uh, uh, they are they are sh- they are demonstrating this downside to our essential trusting nature. They are showing how bad we are at decoding face to face encounters, and they are also um, they are expressing this this um, a correct notion that if I if I trust right. you and it works out, things are going to be so much easier. Like I, you know, you're right. Chamberlain desperately wants this thing just to go away. Right. right? He he's not even interested in. He'd never flown before. He took, he got on a plane to go and see Hitler. He'd never flown in a plane, and you realize when you read when you read that, like how kind of um, Chamberlain is this um, very kind of parochial, um, small town English figure. You know, he's not a man of the world. He's a guy who's he's a he's a one whose interest is his interest is in domestic politics, and the, but he's not. This whole thing out there is confusing to him and overwhelming. And he just wants to sit down with Hitler and say, can we can you sign a paper and have it go away? It's like a it's a it's a kind of a heartbreaking moment. Do you get duped? Of course. I'm but I'm very trusting. <laughs> My I come from a very trusting family. I'm a I'm a high trust guy. I'm not a I'm not a
1: paranoid suspicious person. Malcolm Gladwell. Pleasure to have you on. Thank you for it. And we will be back. Governments have struggled to find effective remedies for some unexpected problems caused by social media. It brings me to my question this week. What would a French bill find social media companies for hosting on their platforms? Was it vaping content, pornography, hateful content, or ads aimed at children? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Talking to Strangers, I know, I know, some of you will say Malcolm Gladwell's books have a formula. You thought things worked this way, but surprise, they don't. I would say to you, it's a very good formula, and he executes it so well, making this book compulsively readable and insightful. Like all of his work, agree or not, it will make you think. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is C, a bill awaiting a vote in the upper house of France's parliament, would fine social media platforms up to 4% of their global revenues for failing to remove hateful content within 24 hours of a user flagging the post, according to the New York Times. Reuters reports the bill is intended to penalize companies for not preventing material like the Christchurch shooter's rampage live-streamed on Facebook, as well as more quotidian forms of hate from spreading with impunity